Off we go, firing it up here. November 9, 2014, lecture discussion number 176 on the Book of Romans. That's kind of funny. I was talking to somebody the other day, and he told me, he said, uh, yeah, um, who does your titles for your sermons? Because I was he's wondering, and I thought immediately that he's speaking about Supper Dave and what Supper Dave writes on sermon audio. He writes a little blurbs, and, and, and I said, so I told him that. And he said, no, no, when you get up in front of your of your congregation, uh, who writes the titles of your uh, lectures? I said, well, I do. <laughs> well, how do you come up with the title? He wanted to know. I said, well, it's a very it's intrinsic, uh, difficult process. I, I spend a lot of time on it. I really do. I'm, he said, for example, what did you write for your last Sunday lecture? I said, lecture discussion number 175. <laughs> And, uh, and no more did he take me seriously. But anyway, this is 176, and uh, unsurprisingly, uh, we have a large pile to clean up, sift through. I'm not going to get where everyone is hoping I'm going to get, apparently, which is the sash and the water. Uh, I'm going to struggle to get through the uh, foolish virgins, but uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Everything that we have put on the table, the three parables of Matthew recently, of Matthew 24, 2445 through Matthew 2530, and then the two parables of Jeremiah 13, which is the sash uh, that we need to get to. Isaiah 50 came up recently, and uh, that needs to be addressed. It definitely is an issue, and it fits in this particular topic. All of those are in the pile, as is Luke 13, 22 through 31. And I also can't quite let go of Philippians 2, 6 through 11, which is where a kenosis theory resides, as you know, or doesn't reside, but at least they assign it there. And critical it is to understand Philippians 2, 6 through 11 correctly. If you don't understand it correctly, you will descend into modernistic or modernism, the heresy of modernism, also called, by the way, non-incarnational theology which is just an elaborate, fancy way of saying that modernists do not, they see, let me put it this way, modernists see the incarnation of Christ to not only be unnecessary, but fundamentally contradictory, and therefore it's invalidated. They don't think the the incarnation occurred or there wasn't also any reason for it to occur. In essence, the modernists say this. They say Christ is not God and it is not possible nor necessary for Christ to be God. And modernism is defined by the fact that it challenges the divinity of Jesus Christ. That's its whole purpose, its whole reason for being is to attack the divinity of Christ. And by doing so, uh, if they were to succeed, right now they are just simply attempting to do it. They want to render the crucifixion and burial and resurrection of Christ to be meaningless. If they were to succeed, that's exactly what they would do. You've heard me say many times, if Christ is not creator God, if he is not in perfect humanity, then there is no salvation. Our Christian beliefs are immediately futile, and we are above all men the most pitiable. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. And modernists never will tell you that. They never address the consequences of their teaching. Their undisguised objective is to represent the godhood of Christ as obsolete thinking. 
and to force Christianity and Christians in the churches to abandon it. So um, I've always asked them when I when they tell me these kinds of things, what are you? Why why does this motivate you? What is motivating you? Why do you want to take the deity out of Christ, uh, knowing full well that it would destroy everything? If they were successful, they would destroy the church. They would leave behind hopelessness, purposelessness, despair, and immorality. Oh, looky. That's exactly the same eventuality that is coveted by the evolutionists, evolutionary philosophy. So the modernists and the evolutionists are simpatico. They are one of the same mind. Both of them want to destroy all vestiges of Christianity. The modernists do it in a way that makes you think that they want to just change the church. No, they want the church to change for the purposes of destroying it. And I doubt that the connection between the evolutionists and the modernists is coincidental. The destruction of the truth of the deity of Christ has been the singular primary priority, I'm sorry, of all of those who share a loathing for it. And so uh, uh, it doesn't surprise me that they find each other. When God revealed he is God, when did God, in the most in the most powerful way, universal way, when did he reveal that he was God? So your first answer should be at the crucifixion. At his crucifixion, he revealed his God, that his, his Godhood in a manner that left no room, no possibility of doubt. That's why you can't have bless his heart. No, it's not bless his heart. You cannot have the Mel Gibson approach um, to the crucifixion. Because by doing so, he looks just like some other guy that got crucified, one of tens of thousands that the Romans crucified. You have to understand that that crucifixion was absolutely powerfully unique, and the purpose that it, that it had was to bring proof, no, no possibility of doubt, that Jesus Christ is God. So that's where he did it in the most public way. Now, he'll do it again in a very public way, won't he? And there will be no doubt once more, here he does it again, that Jesus Christ is God. But he did not bring all men to repentance. Here was this powerful exposition, this exposing of Christ's godhood. You would think that uh, men might repent. They didn't. Instead, they knew he was God. The realization, realization that he was God that existed when they saw him. But it didn't cause repentance. It caused the opposite, a rebellion. It revealed hatred. Christ unveiled himself to be God on the cross. Some did reach for his extended hand. Others uh, redevoted themselves, redoubled themselves to blotting out the fact of the truth of his godhood by any and all means possible, including hiding it. I made the comment a while back. You have a great powerful organizations in this world that are devoted to hiding any proof that Christ is God or that God is creator or pick your subject. They exist for the sole purpose of obfuscating that. They have a political system that's communism. Obvious Christ, obviously Christ being omniscient God knew that both responses would result. He knew the rebellion, hatred, loathing response, the hiding response, the, the destructive response would result. He also knew that many would be saved because he's omniscient God. 
Those two reactions to God placing himself on a cross in that exact spot, that spot's very important at that exact time, those two reactions, both those reactions continue to our current time. It's still going on. Today we call it sheep and goats. And some will argue with me. I don't know why. They should know better by now. I have a lot of information now. The vast Internet audience. But some are going to protest. They're going to say, listen, there's a middle position. There's, Yeah, we'll give you sheep. And we'll let you. And this is inside the church. And we'll have goats over here. But we have some kind of position in between. A hybrid, a blend of the middle, uh, if you will, of the two extremes, they will say. There's an existence of a middle position, a sheep and a goat, a hybrid, a shoat. I like to say a, a goat, teep. Christ addressed this thinking, this insistence at Matthew 7.22, which we'll read today eventually, and Matthew 25.44, or 41 through 45, or 44 through 45, sorry. And what do you think he said? Is there middle ground between sheep and goats? What do you think he said? He said no. There exists no compromise status. There's only goats and there's only sheep. You are either a goat or you are a sheep. And those who say that they hold no animosity towards Christ, that they don't care if Christ is God, and they don't care if he's not God, and they declare themselves ambivalent, and they say uh, they're just noncommittal, God does not accept that. He calls them, people that say that, do you know what he calls them? Wicked. He calls them goats. He doesn't stutter. So the question then leaps off the page, doesn't it? Why is this evasion, this equivocation as to the person of Christ, the Godhood of Christ, declared to be evil by God himself? Christ himself. Why does he say that if you, if you say that you don't care or that, you know, Christ could be God, it's not a pro- Why does he say you deserve perdition for that view? Or attempting it, at least. In essence, Christ is saying that no person has that view. The view doesn't exist. No person has ever lived that has had that view. Therefore, all who claim to be in the middle are what? They're lying. They're liars. That's what God says. They're all lying liar goats. There is none that are in the middle. Pretending, by the way, to be Wheat. They know that they're goats. They're pretending to be wheat. They are tares masquerading as sheep. I'm intentionally commingling all the symbols, right? Now, again, back. What's then the motive of those who lie? See, when I get a modernist in front of me and he tells me that the important thing of his life is to destroy the doctrine of the deity of Christ for the sake of the church's survival, because that's what they'll say to you. The church has to abandon this absurd, they will say, position, this illogical, scientifically illogical uh, contradiction where 
God somehow becomes man, one doesn't fit for them. They have decided that God is not capable of becoming man logically. We'll get to that as the week goes on, or as the weeks go on. But whenever I get one of these guys in front of me for any kind of conversation, I ask them, why do you want this? If it isn't true, just leave the people alone. And they'll say to me, we cannot have this ignorance. We have to stamp out the ignorant thinking that Christ is the incarnated God. And I don't buy that. They have no altruism here. They don't care about my ignorance. So what is their real motive? What are they thinking? What is there to be gained by by lying like this? People that are pretending to be sheep when they're actually goats. And they know they're pretending to be sheep. I've said this many times. You can go to any graduate class of any seminary you want in this country and ask them to raise their hands if they are not saved and you'll get 30, 40%, maybe even more. Pastors are coming out of seminary after seminary, unsaved men, women. Why would you want to be an unsaved person and work for a church? What's the motive? Start figuring that motive out and you will begin to understand the motive of the modernistic philosophy. As well as these people that say they're in the middle. What does God call the ones in the middle, by the way? He he has a term for them. He calls them the lukewarm, yes. Revelation 3.16. In case you think it's possible, if somebody ever comes up to you and says, I'm lukewarm about Christ's deity. Ah, care. He said, I would rather you be a goat, because if you claim to be lukewarm, I will vomit you out. Anyway, we're attempting to figure out what, what it is that they are thinking and what it is that they are gaining presently and currently. So... That's why we find ourselves at Matthew 24:25, where last week I ended, um, kind of ended with the five foolish bridesmaids, asking about them. Why does God call them evil? Because He does. And they they do things. Are they doing evil things, or did, would you read that parable of the five foolish bridesmaids who went to sleep and didn't have any oil in their lamp and they had to go get oil and they beat on the door and God left them out and God calls them wicked. Do you see wickedness in that parable? Are they wicked? The short answer, yes. And we got into that last week. We we started with the, and I need to keep beating this in. Food plus oil plus talents. Is it additive? Or is it the same thing? In other words, if, am I adding the same thing to each other? So each item is the same, so I end up with the same? Or, or does each item have a portion of the totality? Okay? There's a relationship for sure. I said last week, food equals oil equals talents. And now I'm asking this week... Knowing that that's true, are they also additive? Is everything the five foolish bridesmaids say in Matthew 25, 1 through 13, 
is everything the five foolish bridesmaids slash virgins say and everything that they do in that parable is everything wicked. Yep. Just as it is with the rich Pharisee and Lazarus. Everything the rich Pharisee says in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, everything he says and everything he does is wicked. Same thing for the five bridesmaids. Foolish bridesmaids. So that's pretty much where we left off. So let's see if we can dig ourselves out uh, from underneath uh, our heap here. So let's ask some uh, obvious questions. Can't. Uh, hopefully, maybe I can. I will find out. See how time goes. In Matthew 24, 45 through 51, I have the faithful and wise servant. So let's start drawing those cont- contrasts. If you haven't been here, there's three parables in a row that start in Matthew 24, 45 through 51. The next one is in Matthew 25, 1 through 13. And the last one is in Matthew 25, 14 through 30, 31. But in Matthew 24, 45 through 51, the first parable of those three in a row that Christ gives, that he is using, they have very similar formats and they have very similar elements, but each one is slightly different. And of course, what's the plan? You start to put them all together and see what they really mean. I have a wise servant, faithful and wise. So he begins to draw this contrast. I have a faithful, wise servant, and the faithful, wise servant gives food. And that's why I said food equals oil equals talent or gold. And then, and the master comes and he finds this faithful, wise servant giving food, and the wise uh, servant is blessed because when the master comes and finds him giving food, he, he is pleased and he blesses that servant. So you see immediately the format. The master puts the servant in charge. And then it implies that the master leaves, the master comes back, and he finds the servant giving food. And he is pleased with that, the master is, and he blesses the servant, and he calls the servant faithful and wise. And then, so uh, the, the key to that is to get the correct definition of food, because if we get the correct definition of food, then we'll be able to get the correct definition of oil, and then we'll be able to get the correct definition of talent, which is our plan. Once we have the correct definition of talent, then we can figure out what ability is. Okay, you still with me with that? Anyway, the contrast in that first parable, parable number one, if you want to call it that, is the evil servant. The evil servant, he says this. He says, the master is delaying his coming. So, I introduced that, this delay. The master is delaying. The first servant just takes what he's told to do and he does it, and when the master comes back, he's still doing it blessing. The evil servant is given the same instructions, and his first response is, guy's not coming back. I got a lot of time here. What he does, instead of giving food, he begins to beat his fellow servants. 
I want you to think tortured, killed, enslaved. All of that would apply. He's evil. Once he decides that the master is not coming back, at least not anytime soon, off he goes into killing other people. So there's your two contrasts. You have gives food or kills them. If you want to add beat, go ahead. So you have two kinds of people in the parable. If you want to expand it, extrapolate it out to a wide group, you have people that do what they're told and they are blessed and they're obedient. Uh, and you have people that kill. Give them food, beat, kill your fellow servants. Side-by-side comparisons with the clear implications that these are the opposites. As I said, or that these are absolute opposites. As I said last week, all three of the Matthew 24 through 25 parables, the, the good and evil slave parable, the one who feeds and the one who kills, uh, what I call the feeder-beater uh, comparison there, the one who's in the company of evil versus the one that is wise and faithful. Then I have the two, the two groups of bridesmaids. I have five that are wise and five that are foolish. And then I have the three that were given talents, huge sums of gold. Two are wise, good, and faithful, and well-doneers. The other one is wicked and lazy, evil, and is cast into condemnation. All three of these parables have the same little component in it, this delaying component. The master comes, the master departs, and the master returns. There's a period of time between when he comes and when he returns. And in that period of time, things occur. And when he comes, he settles it. The master returns, he he settles it. So the master comes, the master departs, and the master comes or returns and settles accounts. And the wise, good, faithful are waiting for his return. They're watching for it. They're prepared, i.e., they are giving food or they have oil for their lamps or they have taken the talents of gold, a big mass amount of gold that they were given, and they go do something that they are asked to do. They are giving food, they have oil, they've invested the gold, and when they do that, they're found to have done it. When the master returns to settle accounts, they're blessed, they're let through the door, and each one, or they enter into the joy of the Lord. So that's what those three parables do. And the wicked, foolish ones, now on the, on the other side, they're lazy, they kill, they beat, they have no oil, they bury or hide their gold, and they're caught unaware, and they're not watching, and they're not looking. And this, they don't enter. What happens to them? They're cut in two. By the way, when it says that that evil slave that is killing his, his fellow servants, when he's finally caught, the master does what? God does what to him? Cuts him in two. Where in the Bible, where else in the Bible does Christ come back and with the sword cut people in two that are killing other people? Yeah, that's Revelation 19.21, right? So these people that are burying and hiding their gold and they didn't have any oil and they're killing other people, they're always caught by the return. They never see the return coming. They're cut in two. The door is shut and not open for them. Their gold is taken and they're cast into outer darkness. So the most obvious of the obvious questions now. Why does he leave? 
Here's your pattern again. The master comes, and he has something to give. In this case, he gave food. In the second one, he, he, they have to have oil. In the third one, uh, he gives gold, and then he leaves. And then he returns. My question is, why did he leave? What's the purpose of leaving? By the way, has Christ left? Physically, he has left. Remember, he's omniscient, omnipresent. But why? Why not just stay? What is the purpose of God leaving? And he does it all the time. What's that? What Marie says uh, that people's true selves come out because he leaves. Marie gets the first A of the day. Why this long time, long gap? He doesn't just leave for a couple of hours. He leaves for thousands of years now. It's thousands of years between when Christ first came and when he returns. And I've consistently answered that by pointing out that by doing so, this God brings, he has brought billions into existence. Us, we're here because of this long gap. And that's an act of, you know, he's given us life, he's given us immortality. Immortality and all that's in question is our destiny, our destination, if you will. But billions have come into existence because of this long gap, this leaving. He's allowed the process to accumulate, and we're part of that accumulation. And some people will get a blessing because Christ will find them watching. What makes you watch? He says, watch, therefore. Watch for what? Watch for me. See, the evil slave said, I don't have to watch for him. I can start killing people. I don't have to worry about it. The others are always looking, always watching for Christ. And they will be given a blessing. They'll enter through the door, enter into the joy of the Lord. But I think the overwhelming majority will not watch. And they will be caught. Let's ask it another way, see if this helps you. What if Christ does not wait or did not wait, did not leave? What would Satan say? In other words, Christ comes, here's your food, go feed people, I'll stand right here and watch it. Whoops, don't do that ever again. Put behind my back. Here's your talent of gold. Go invest it. I'll be right here. Here's what he does. Here's your talent of gold. Go invest it. And he leaves. What if he said, here's your talent of gold. Here's your food. I'll stand right here. What would Satan say? What would the accusation be? Because obviously God intends to do this. Come, leave, return. Or come, depart, return. And we see that in the very beginning with Adam. God assigns Adam tasks. He's to name the animals and he's got two trees there. Don't eat from one. Eat from all these others. Don't eat from that one. There's two trees. And he says it's not good for man to be alone. And he creates Eve. 
then the implication is, is that Christ physically left. Gave him an assignment, physically left. And his return uh, is now at Genesis 3, 8 through 9. And then the trial or the accounting is at Genesis 3, 10 through 13. The sentencing at Genesis uh, 3, 14 through 19, as you all know. But that same pattern is there. It starts out that way. And we see it in Ezekiel 10 with the Shekinah glory departs from the temple. And we see the eighth step of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony where Christ says, I'm going now. I'm going to prepare a place for you, right? All of this departing is in it's everywhere, and he's always referencing his leaving, almost always, quite often for certain, and then his return. And these three parables are a prime example of it. So again, if Christ came and he just stayed. Very good. Second day of the day is from Marie's son. You might have looked at her paper. Let's just say that. It's possible. He's right next to her. Yeah, if Christ came and stayed, did not ascend, but remained on earth. If the parables of Matthew 24 through 25, chapters 24 through 25, did not contain the leaving component, component did not contain, I'm sorry, I can't talk today, did not contain the leaving component, what would have been the impact? In other words, if the parables had Christ giving the talents and remaining to oversee, directly supervising, what does Satan say? If the evil servant is not able to say, my master has delayed because the master is still there, what then? I, and I hope you can see exactly what Supper Dave said, that uh, this delaying, this departing element, especially when coupled with the accountability element that is in all of these, the trial portion that is prominent, that this departing, this leaving the servants, that causes things and it causes thoughts. Just as Marie said, things start to come out. My master is not coming back. Bridegroom say, we really don't need the oil. The bridegroom isn't going to come. We'll go along here, but we don't need oil. The other servant said, I can hide the gold. Never going to be an accounting. I hope that it is obvious to you that the free will Aspect is effected, effected, brought to the service, surface. Exactly what happens. Satan would say, if you are not leaving, if you don't let these people exercise their thought processes, then you are constricting free will and there is no free will. And if there is no free will, then there is no solution because you are the author of sin. And back we go into that, right? So the delaying or the leaving has a free will aspect or component to it. By the way, the modernists share with the evolutionists the idea that there is no free will. I would expect that. Anyway, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, omnibenevolent God leaves man with responsibilities. Will man obey? Will man anticipate the return and the trial and the accounting? Or will man think evil? Does he believe that evil, does man think that evil will prevail? And God assigned Adam, placed two trees, established the free will principle, 
which, by the way, is why the wicked and lazy servant who hid the talent references Adam. Remember, he says exactly Adam's response. Matthew 25, 25. We'll go back to that next week. More on that later. But for now, recognize that Christ, by removing his physical presence, man is now left with decisions. Does does the man believe in an accounting or a return? Does the man believe in God's goodness? Does he believe that Christ will come and end wickedness? If he believes those three, is that belief manifested? Do I see evidence of that belief? Is it revealed? If he doesn't believe it, what will I probably see? I'll see evil come pouring out of him. I will see unbelief evidenced. Belief and unbelief are willful events. Christ is leaving. He's going to return. He's going to separate the believers from the unbelievers. What he's going to do. Okay, now, got that out of the way. Let's... uh, Back up and accumulate the clues of the five foolish virgins and the five wise virgins or bridesmaids. Now I have to read it. Matthew 25. For the first time in my, gotta be 25 year, I hesitate to call what I've done a career, but first time I left my Bible at home. So it's happening right before your eyes. No, I've got uh, Terithathes here. Um, So I'll read this. You follow along. Here we go. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And while the bridegroom delayed, tarried, waited, they all slumbered and slept. So again, there's that element. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom comes. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, No. Lest there, not, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of God, Son of Man comes. Okay? Five foolish virgins. They did and said some interesting things. List makers going to list. So we'll make a list. Interesting, they took 
no oil. I find that interesting. Don't you find that interesting? Because what did they take? They took lamps. I say it this way. They got lamps, but they got no oil. Okay, that'd be like me taking a flashlight, but I didn't take batteries. Now, some people will say, well, there was already oil in the lamp. Really? Did they take an empty lamp? If they took an empty lamp, what are they thinking? Then everybody slumbered and slept. I've always asked this my whole career. You can laugh. Thank you. They slumbered and they slept. What is the difference between slumbering and sleeping? But all of them did it. Is that redundant or is it distinct? All arose and trimmed or attempted to light their lamps. Everybody did it. All of them did it. Some of them knew there was no oil in the lamps, regardless of your position. So what am I asking? Why would you get up and try to light a lamp that you know that you didn't either bring oil or it's out of oil? And you're going to have to decide, did they know it was out of oil from the beginning or did they know it was out of oil in the mist. Are, are they completely unaware, oblivious, five little brides' maids? Number four. They said to the other bridesmaids, gimme, gimme that. Your oil. Now we know we have to have oil to get in the door. Everybody knows. Give me your oil. I look at it this way. You're on the Titanic. Not a really good analogy here, but go with me. You've got a life vest that you brought. Because you were thinking I might need it. And somebody who you know deliberately didn't bring a life vest now asks you for yours. That analogy might not fit, but I just want to help you think in those lines. They said, give me your oil. And the wise answered, no. And many, many people read this and they go, these five foolish bridesmaids, oh, don't we feel sorry for them. If you're feeling sorry for these five foolish bridesmaids, you're feeling sorry for wicked, evil people. God calls them wicked and evil. And in fact, I have many people that go, look at these selfish, wise bridesmaids. I won't give them any oil. Aren't they nasty? If you're thinking that way, you're in trouble. You won't figure out what the talents are. And they say, no, go to those, no go, no to those 
Go to those who sell and buy your own oil. So we have, we have those that sell and you go buy your oil from them. And the five foolish virgins, oops, I'm missing something. Ah, very important. Rose and lit lamps. Give me your oil because. Very important. Glad I caught it. Because our lamps are going out. The implication being is that they had oil, but it's run out. So what they did is they must have just left their all their lamps. All five of these foolish virgins had oil, but their story is we uh, somehow let them all burn out. Then they said, "Give me so give us your oil." And they said, "No, go buy it. Go go uh, go to those who sell oil and buy it." And so then the five foolish virgins they went. That's very important. And then they said, came back and said, "Lord, Lord, open the door." Okay. And so now, all those questions. Again, did they know that they took no oil? Another question. Were the lamps ever burning? Ever. Is their statement, our lamps are going out, is that true? Or is that a lie? There's your choice. Is this a lie? Or is this the truth? You pick. Remember what God calls them. These are wicked. God does not know them. He shuts the door on them. What are the chances that somebody that God shuts the door on is telling the truth? Not, not likely, is it? So, you better vote right here. How, why did they lie? Why did they tell that lie then? Here's the interesting thing. The wise knew immediately they were lying. They said, no, not buying it. Would you have given them your oil? Do you feel sorry for them? The wise did not give them any oil. The implication is, is that they didn't believe them and they didn't feel sorry for them. The wise knew they were lying. Instead, the wise did this. They said, go and buy oil from those who sell. And the evil virgins do it. I want you to note the pattern so far. They take no oil, but they take lamps. Again, who takes a lamp without taking oil? They demand that oil be given to them when they fully know that they didn't bring any oil. They are told to go buy it from those who sell oil. That raises the inevitable question, doesn't it? Is it possible to buy oil from anybody? What is oil? See, you had to decide what food is. And now you've got to decide what oil is. Eventually you get to decide what the talents of gold are. Can you buy the oil? 
Does anyone sell this oil? Why did the five foolish virgins demand that the five wise virgins give them their oil? Is it possible for me to give my oil to you or vice versa? Obviously, it is necessary to have oil. I have to have a burning lamp to get through the door, to be ready. Because i got to go with Christ when he returns. And oil is necessary. The lamp's got to be lit. So the wicked, they take a lamp with no oil. Why would they do it? What's their plan? Yes, sir. Well, it says they get up to lamp or to light their oil. Yes. What, where, what is the source of the oil? Very good question that he's asking. Obviously, you come back here and you know, what Bill asked for the Bill the Cow asked for those of you on the internet. Who is the one that has the oil? Where do you get the oil? Clearly, you can't buy it or sell it. So who had it in the first place? Where did the wise virgins get their oil? Where did the faithful good servant get his food? Where did the three men get their talents of gold? So clearly you can't buy the oil, can you? So they take Lamps with no oil, and they're tagging along, knowing all along they have no oil. And then something happens that shocks them. What happened that shocked them? Yes, he actually came back. The bridegroom came. What? This thing's not supposed to come. Christ is not God. He's never coming. There is no return. There is no accounting. I am simply doing what? Pretending. Why would you pretend? What is the motive for the pretenders? And now they're caught. They had no idea that he was coming. They have no understanding of the oil at all because they... They say, no, go, the wise did, go to those who sell and buy oil. And they went. They went. Because why would they go? There isn't anybody they can buy the oil from. What should they have really said? This oil can't be bought. It has to be given. I can't go buy it. But if they had the capacity to say that, they would have had the oil, right? Does that make sense? Chronister's law of capacity. If they had the capacity to know that the oil was precious and they could not be bought, then they would have had a belief in the source of oil and they would have had oil. But instead, they go off to buy it from somebody. As if that's possible. You can't buy any oil. And so they're going to come back to the door with no oil. And what are they going to say? 
They don't have any oil. Do they beat on the door? I imagine them beating on the door. And they say, I'll read it again. Afterwards came the other virgins. Lord, Lord, open. And he says, I don't know you. You don't have any oil. The wicked, oh, let me say, it, it is wicked to, to demand that somebody give you oil. Ask why that is. It is wicked to take a lamp with no oil. Hopefully you can figure that one out. It is wicked to go and buy the oil. And then ask this, is it wicked to demand that Christ open the shut door? Who in, who in their right mind would stand before God and demand that he save them? Why, why would you demand that God save you? You save me now. Is that going to work? I don't think that's going to work. Let me read. Uh, we got an early start here today, so somebody will have to tell Lindsay and uh, the lovely Lori that we're about to shut down. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. See here, I almost found it. This this Bible has really thin pages that normally I would just rip in pieces. Oh, look, Terry actually has this outlined in preparation for today's uh, lecture. Let me read it. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. These people came to him and said, Lord, Lord. Then they added this word. Open the door. Lord, Lord, open. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in in your name? And in the name, and in your name have cast out devils or demons, and in your name done many wonderful works. So we're going to have a lot of people come and say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? What is the implication in that sentence? The implication is what? They're lying. They didn't prophesy. Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons? The answer is implied in that. It's a rhetorical question. The answer to that question, no, you didn't. What did you do instead? You didn't prophesy, so what were you doing? You were lying. How, by what means? You're pretending. Did you cast out any demons? No. Did you do any wonderful works? No. It's the same thing. No. No, you didn't. It's the same answer that they gave to those five wicked bridesmaids. Go ahead, I might have time. Well, very excellent observation. 
Do you have somebody pretending to buy or to sell oil? Yeah, you do. Is it really oil? No. What is it? It's a counterfeit. So it's hopeless to come back to that door with any oil. They don't have any. Do they know they don't have any? Yeah. How do they know? Lamp didn't light. Got to have a lit lamp, baby. Pretty simple. Now, just in real closing so that I can get this in for next week. Let me bring up Luke 13. Has more explanations of these five bridesmaids, or these ten, if you will. Verse 22 through 31. And again, I have to be very careful that I don't tear this Bible. Okay. Make sure that I'm right. I'll start at 22, Luke 13. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Then one said unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will be will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and has shut to the door, and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not. Whence ye are. Then shall you begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in the presence, and thou hast taught us in our streets. But he says, I'll tell you, I know you not. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And then there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you have the exact same phrasing. There are going to be people who pretend. There are going to be people who lie. They're going to say that they have oil or they don't have oil. They're going to say that they're the ones who sell the oil. You can't sell oil. They're going to say that they're the ones from you to, you have to buy the oil from them. They have no oil to sell. The oil they've got is garbage. Doesn't light the lamp. Then they're going to go to God and they're going to lie to him. They're going to say, hey, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons. We did many wonderful things. He's going to say, no, you didn't. You're liars. You're pretending. And you can't fool him. He's omniscient God. Okay? So now you have to decide what is the food. Now what is the oil and then next week, we'll add in the sash, and we'll finally come to the talents. Let's rise and be dismissed.